was on our first date. Uh-huh. Everything was going great. Then what? And I thought it could be love, but it could be something I ate. What's that? Back to his place. You can take back Thank God for poop poop Imagine where you can go So, I bet you are wondering why you're listening to a song about a product that traps the odor left behind after you go to the bathroom. Well, last year the company that makes the product, Poopery, released this song as an internet-only advertisement that looks and sounds more like a standard music video than a traditional ad. This video has been viewed 12 million times on YouTube, so the non-traditional route worked pretty well. Music in advertisements is nothing new, but what's distinct about Poopery's ad is that it's really long. Advertisements typically don't last three minutes and four seconds. The song was composed with lyrics entirely about the product and plays for almost a full three minutes. This raises a couple of questions. Is Poopery's song Imagine Where You Can Go a glimpse into the future of ad music on the internet? And can we call this song a jingle? Hi, I'm Matthew Billy, and this is Between the Liner Notes, a podcast about music, why it is the way it is, and how it got to be that way. This show is produced and distributed by Goat Rodeo. So, just a heads up before we begin, there are a ton of ads in this episode. None of the companies represented in these ads paid us to include them, and neither Between the Liner Notes nor Goat Rodeo endorses any of these products. As I'm sure you're aware, Poopery is not the first company to use a song about the product to try to sell it. Traditionally, these songs have been called jingles. Merriam-Webster defines a jingle as a short song that is easy to remember and that is used to help sell a product on television or radio. But the term did not originally have anything to do with music. I wanted to find out the history of the word, so I contacted somebody experienced in this field of research, the host of the Illusionist podcast, Helen Zaltzman. Hey, Helen. Hello. All right. So uh, are you ready to break down for us the etymology of the word jingle? Yeah, it's fairly brief, but it went to a place that I thought was quite interesting. The first official appearance of jingle to mean a song in an ad came in 1930, but it had been in use for at least 20 years before that to mean catchy phrases in ads, so slogans and rhymes. I was looking at a 1914 instruction manual about using language in advertising and um, it mentions jingles then, but presumably that will be for print ads. This reflects the earlier sense of jingle, which was catchy phrases in writing, particularly poems, which I think would have been from the idea that the words had a similar sound in your brain to the similar effect to bells ringing. And the original jingle, which is from the 14th century, that was non-omatopoeia. They just thought the words sounded like things which jingle. Ah. Also in the 1700s, there was a slang term, jingle brains, which uh, meant a person who was kind of wild and a bit crazy. So I guess then that it wasn't until the invention of radio that the term jingle became associated with music. Yeah, I don't think it would have been. Obviously, there was jingling in music. People were using bells, but it does seem to be primarily written until when was the first radio jingle? To answer that question, I asked Timothy Taylor, the author of the book, The Sounds of Capitalism, Advertising Music and the Conquest of Culture. 
Well, in the earliest days, in the 20s, there wasn't any advertising. People thought that radio was a kind of a public service. The idea of advertising on the radio was seen as crass, you know, like a door-to-door salesman, and people just didn't want that. That changed fairly quickly, and especially after the Depression. But um, there were healthy and vigorous debates about how to fund radio broadcasting in the early days. We decided to have the advertising model, which we still have. But it wasn't advertising through lots of different companies like we have today. It used to be one single sponsor of a program. Even an hour-long program was paid for by a single sponsor. Therefore, they got the naming rights to those programs, and every ad... It would be solely for the products of the sponsor. But the standalone jingle, like we now think of it, really doesn't come into being until the mid-1920s, a jingle for Wheaties. It's weird to imagine Wheaties, the breakfast of champions, as being unpopular. But in 1926, no one was eating the cereal. The Washburn Crosby Company, the forebearer of General Mills, was ready to take the cereal off the shelves and retire the Wheaties brand. That is, until the secretary of the company brainstormed an idea... Washburn Crosby had just purchased a radio station in Minneapolis, and the secretary believed that the station could be leveraged to promote their struggling serial. So they hired a bunch of amateur musicians in a barbershop quartet. They took a 1919 jazz song and adapted the chorus to be sung in barbershop quartet style with Wheaties lyrics. Have you listen to it today, it sounds incredibly lugubrious and sort of funereal. It doesn't sound like a, a catchy, upbeat jingle, but it actually was fairly popular, and that, that jingle was credited with saving Wheaties uh, in the mid-1920s, and it was actually, it was aired across the country. After the jingle's success in Minneapolis, the ad campaign was expanded nationally, bringing the lugubrious Wheaties jingle into living rooms all over the United States giving it the distinction of being the first standalone jingle to reach a national audience. But even after reviving a fading breakfast cereal, the advertising agencies along New York's Madison Avenue ignored the jingle, and the Wheaties ad campaign was more of an anomaly than a trendsetter. It would take over a decade more in a worldwide financial depression before the Mad Men embraced the jingle. The song that finally broke through their resistance was composed by two songwriters who, on a whim, wrote a song for Pepsi-Cola, hoping that the company would like it. So in in the late 30s, a couple of guys wrote a jingle and walked into the president of Pepsi's office, Walter Mack, in Long Island City, New York, which is Queens, New York. And they had a portable phonograph, and they played him a version of this jingle. And Pepsi in that era was sort of a distant second to Coca-Cola. They didn't have much of an advertising budget. And Walter Mack liked the sound of this jingle, and he wanted to get on the radio. But in this era, on the radio, you couldn't purchase less than five minutes of airtime, and he had a 60-second jingle. And he found a station in New Jersey, a radio station, that was not doing very well, and he convinced them to sell him one minute of radio time and so he could air his jingle. Do you like that? Do you like that? Pepsi-Cola. It's the pot of 12 ounces. That's a lot. Twice as much for nickel, too. 
It was played on radio stations across the country. A single was made so people could hear it on jukeboxes. Popular song versions were made that incorporated the jingle, but you know, popular songs are longer than one minute, so you know other lyrics were added. And it just became this huge, huge phenomenon. Pepsi-Cola Hits the Spot first aired in 1939, and it continued to be played on the radio and TV for nearly two decades. The venerable jingle was finally retired in 1958 when the cost of a Pepsi went up from a nickel, a low price that was prominently emphasized in the song's lyrics. The well-known trade magazine, Advertising Age, awarded Pepsi-Cola Hits the Spot the number 14 slot on the top 100 greatest ad campaigns of all time. Even today, after being absent from the airwaves for over half a century, many people, including one famous singer, still remember the lyrics. So actually, when I interviewed Barry Manilow for this book, he asked me, what was the first jingle? And I said, you know, I gave a typical academic answer saying, well, it's complicated and there's one for Wheaties, blah, blah, blah. But then I said, but really the one that kicked it all off was this jingle for Pepsi-Cola. Then he started singing it to me, so he, he remembered that jingle himself. Unlike with the Wheaties jingle, Pepsi-Cola hits the spot was too big to ignore, and the advertising agencies along Madison Avenue began churning out jingles, one after another, hoping to mimic Pepsi's success. The advertising world's opinion of jingles took a complete 180-degree turn. Well, music became seen as something that could help you sell a product in ways that it wasn't before, and a lot of money was spent on them in their production, and it really created this new industry that employed a lot of musicians. A lot of musicians, you know, made a lot of money on these things over the years. In the two decades after Pepsi-Cola Hits the Spot first aired on the radio, many musicians found full-time careers producing jingles. Recording jingles, especially for the singers, became a specialized skill set unto itself. The singers were definitely specialists. And people who, you know, with phenomenal chops, I mean, they could walk into a studio and sight sing, you know, sing music from written out music that they had never encountered before. Because uh, you had to be able to do it. Recording studio time costs a lot of money. And you just had to be able to walk in and nail it. These singers could do that. The singers who could nail a jingle on the first take were hired to work on more jingles time and again. The ad agencies liked working with these singers so much that during this era, there were only a handful of singers used on all the hundreds of jingles produced. This, coupled with some new recording technology, made these jingles all sound the same. You know, the Germans during World War II invented magnetic tape, and you started to be able to do multi-tracking. So you could record one singer singing more than one thing at the same time. And so you could get just a quartet of singers and have them you know, sing several different parts and you know, multi-track them, and then you have a, you know, a 12-part chorus or something. And that sound became known as the Madison Avenue Choir. Brill cream, a little babadooya. Brill cream, you look so debonair. Brill cream, the gals will all pursue ya. They'll love to get their fingers in your hair. Halo, everybody, halo. Halo is the shampoo that glorifies your hair. So halo, everybody, halo. During the 1940s and 50s, the sound of the Madison Avenue Choir dominated the airwaves. But despite its prominence, few of these jingles were able to match the success of Pepsi-Cola Hits the Spot. One jingle that came close, and maybe even surpassed it, used a solo vocalist rather than a whole technologically enhanced choir. That company was a tropical fruit importer called Chiquita Banana, and they needed their jingle to go a step beyond simply imparting consumers with a warm, fuzzy feeling about the brand. 
Chiquita needed to use their lyrics to educate America about their strange fruit. After World War II, you know, American servicemen were coming back from having served in the tropics, so they knew about tropical fruit, but a lot of Americans didn't, so you had to know about how to deal with tropical fruit. The Chiquita Banana Jingle had information like, you know, don't put your bananas in the refrigerator. I'm Chiquita Banana, and I've come to say bananas have to ripen in a certain way, and when they're flecked with brown and have a golden hue, bananas taste the best and are the best for you. That was introduced in 1944 when it was used for decades into the 90s. It might st- I haven't checked their website in a while. It might still be in use. In 1945, Time Magazine declared that the Chiquita Banana song was the number one jingle of all time. The tune could be heard on 155 radio stations in the United States, 30 in Canada, and was broadcast over the airwaves 376 times per day. Like Pepsi Cola Hits the Spot, the Chiquita Banana Jingle was expanded into a full three-minute song and printed to sheet music so people could perform the song themselves. Also, Chiquita's goal in educating the public about bananas was successful. In a poll conducted in 1945, 90% of the people knew bananas should not be kept in the refrigerator, and 95% knew how to discern when a banana was ripe. Compared to other jingles from that era, the longevity of the Chiquita Banana song is a bit of an anomaly. By the beginning of the 1960s, after two decades of bombardment with the Madison Avenue Choir, people were beginning to tire of it. The sound of jingles wasn't evolving, and what would have been fresh and new during World War II sounded outdated and cliched to the rock and roll generation. This change should have been easy to spot. There were plenty of clues on the radio and television, but the ad executives on Madison Avenue remained blissfully unaware of the cultural shifts taking place around them. You have to imagine the Don Draper types, you know, these guys in their suits making a lot of money in in Manhattan, not having a clue about, you know, maybe what even their own children were listening to. A lot of these rich advertising guys lived in Connecticut, and they would take the train into Grand Central Station and they could walk to their offices and then they would take the train back to Connecticut and they weren't even, you know, on the street with, you know, like real people for for more than a few minutes a day. And then they go back to their big houses in rural parts of Connecticut and just never mix with working class, lower, lower middle class people. The idea that there's a youth culture out there and they listen to different kinds of music and you have to sell to them in a different way, it took, you know, the better part of a decade for people in the industry to figure out. Pepsi-Cola was one of the first companies who did figure this out. In the early 1960s, teenagers were beginning to be recognized as having their own youth culture, and Pepsi had the idea to specifically target this newly acknowledged demographic. Well, the two companies, uh, Pepsi and Coke, are really different. And uh, at this point, I should say that in the advertising world, I don't know if this is still true, but certainly historically, there's something that they call parody products, things like soft drinks. I mean, there's no real difference between Pepsi and Coca-Cola or Burger King and McDonald's or whatever. These are seen as parody products. And so the only way you can actually make them seem different from one another is through advertising. So it's the soft drinks in particular that are spending tons of money to try to capture this youth market. And the two major players, Pepsi and Coke, are really quite different. Coke's strategy was always to try to get people to think that their product was better. Pepsi's strategy almost always was to try to get people to think that, you know, like you're cooler if you drink Pepsi or, you know, Pepsi is for people who think young. Have you noticed? You hear something new at fountains today. People who think young say, Pepsi, please. Well, I'd be proud 
Pepsi they agree. Those who think young say Pepsi, please. They pick the right one, the modern light one. Now it's Pepsi. Pepsi's next jingle, titled For Those Who Think Young, aired for the first time in 1960. The lyrics speak directly to the young, hip, and modern audience of the era. But you'll notice that aside from the youthful-sounding singer, the music doesn't actually sound like the rock and roll the kids were listening to. I mean, it's no Hound Dog or Jailhouse Rock. The melody was appropriated from Making Whoopi, a jazz song composed three decades prior, and the musical arrangement sounds modern, but fairly conservative. Like most companies, Pepsi was scared to use rock and roll in an advertisement. They were concerned that it would be offensive to the large segment of the American population who believed that teenagers who listen to rock and roll were devil worshippers. Now it's Pepsi for those who think young. Especially among the, the major national brands, uh, you were trying to market to huge swaths of the American population. I mean, Coca-Cola was trying to sell... Coke not just to, you know, upper middle class New Yorkers or poor people in the South. They were trying to, you know, blanket the country. So you had to try to find a way to come up with music that was the least offensive to the highest number of people, which is one reason why, you know, that Madison Avenue choir sound was used, I'm sure. But young people weren't interested in that. And the advertising industry was very slow to come to the idea that if you want to attract youth, especially to things that they purchased, like soft drinks, then you've got to start getting your head around the idea that you have to employ music that's more appealing to them. After Pepsi's For Those Who Think Young, it would take nearly another decade for ad agencies to fully embrace the music of the youth culture. Like so many aspects of America, the 1960s transformed advertising, and Pepsi-Cola was once again leading the charge. Heated arguments over the war in Vietnam, race relations, gender equality, and many other things created a chasm between the older and younger generations that was too large to simply be ignored. While Coca-Cola advertisements were featuring Norman Rockwell-styled images of small towns and nostalgic scenes, Pepsi embraced the generation gap and sided firmly with the youth. They decided to craft a song with an optimistic message and depicted scenes of young people at moments of their spiritual best. They dubbed the younger generation the Pepsi generation, and for the first time, the music in the ad sounded like something that could be found in a teenager's record collection. The jingle was titled, You've Got a Lot to Live, and aired for the first time in 1969. Pepsi's perspective, it was an incredibly moving song. It did really catch on as a song. I mean, people really heard it as something different and responding to the youth of the day more than a lot of other advertising songs of that era. 
if Coca-Cola hadn't come along with its Hilltops commercial a little bit later, that, you know, that could have been, you know, the high watermark of soft drink commercials from that era. While waiting in an airport terminal for his flight to board, an ad executive named Bill Backer watched a man with a bottle of Coke in his hand talking to his friend, laughing and having a great time. Inspired by the scene, Backer found the nearest napkin and scrawled on it the line, I'd like to buy the world a Coke. He gave that napkin to two British songwriters who worked the line into a new song called Hilltops. Like Pepsi's You've Got a Lot to Live, Hilltops had the sound of modern popular music. For the commercial, Coke filmed a choir of young people on a grassy hilltop in Italy. Each held a bottle of Coke in front of them, like it was a lit candle, and sang the optimistic lyrics. I'd like to buy the world a home and furnish it with love. Grow apple trees and honeybees and snow-white turtle doves. I like to teach the world to sing, sing with me. arresting you would just stop and watch it it actually departed from coca-cola's usual approach which is to talk about how their product was better than everybody else's it actually went the pepsi route and tried to make their product seem to be cooler in this case you know among young people or even flirting a little bit with the counterculture because it had a racially and ethnically very diverse group pictured in that commercial As the 1970s wore on, the demographic targeting that began with Pepsi-Cola hits the spot became more and more complex. By the 1980s, a new so-called science emerged called psychographics, which was a psychological profiling of the population, parsing it out into distinct consumer groups, each requiring its own unique advertising strategies. Those strategies employed jingles with less and less frequency. Well, it's pretty clear that a lot of people just thought that they were tacky. They were just seen as old-fashioned and also sort of hard sell. And the industry in this period is really shifting a lot. It was shifting in part because you were getting baby boomers rising to executive ranks in the industry. And they wanted to use the music that they liked in commercials. And you also had new kinds of advertising coming around, like through Saatchi and Saatchi and some other big companies that wanted advertising to look and sound edgier and to be more cinematic. You have the rise of MTV, which also introduced new sort of ways of putting music and visuals together and people learning that instead of thinking that music could support visuals, that visuals could support music. So you have all of these things happening that just about killed off the jingle. Not quite, but just about and a lot of the older jingle composers, including people I interviewed, they found themselves out of work. In the psychographics era of advertising, Madison Avenue came to believe that the lyrical content of the ad music was less important than who was singing it. 
Agencies began using music that was already familiar to people before it was used in the ad. Rather than simply craft songs that sound like what's in a teenager's record collection, they preferred to license songs that already were and maybe ask the musician to endorse the product. Well, a lot of it was about trying to make the product seem cool. And, you know, if you can get a song by a known act, maybe that'll make your product seem cool if, you know, if you have some known musician's music in there. In 1983, Michael Jackson had released his first music videos, and they made him cooler than ever. Pepsi wanted Jackson's help making their soft drink seem cool, so in 1984, they paid him $5 million to appear in commercials. At that point in time, the deal was reputed to be the largest celebrity endorsement ever. Pepsi's ad agency shot a commercial of Jackson dancing with some kids dressed just like him. Rather than craft a new song, they tweaked the lyrics to Billie Jean slightly, reviving the theme that the youth of America is the Pepsi generation. You're a whole new generation Just dancing through the day You're grabbing for the magic on the run You're a whole new generation You're loving what they do I put a Pepsi in the motion But that choice is up to you Hey, you're the Pepsi generation Pepsi was just one of the many brands that used this strategy. Nike licensed the Beatles' Revolution 1 to sell sneakers. The California Raisins sang Heard It Through the Grapevine in an ad to promote, well, raisins. With so much music that already existed being licensed for ads, the demand for jingles dwindled away. The next major evolution in advertising music occurred more because of factors outside of the ad industry than within. After the Communications Act of 1996 passed through Congress, radio stations began to monopolize and be controlled by just a handful of large corporations. Rather than allow experimental disc jockeys to select the music, the playlists were controlled at the corporate level and the same one was used at multiple stations. This, coupled with the fact that MTV had stopped playing music videos, meant that less and less new music was getting through to people. If artists wanted exposure to new audiences, they had to find new ways to do it. The ad agencies, who are now staffed with younger and hipper employees, saw this as an opportunity not only to use music to sell products, but to use their commercials as a vehicle to expose people to new music. The people in the advertising industry did see themselves as bringing new music to the masses and saw themselves on Madison Avenue as being the new MTV. They really saw it that way. They really saw themselves as the purveyor of the hip, cool, new music that you probably wouldn't hear anywhere else on the radio. In some ways, they were right. Instead of using ads to sell products, the trend of the last 15 years has been to use ads to sell a lifestyle and make the product appear essential for that lifestyle. Ad agencies began selecting music that was completely unknown to their audience, but evoked the lifestyle that they were trying to sell. Musicians have traditionally opposed licensing their music for advertisements, but recently, in wake of the changes to radio and MTV, have viewed ads as a way to reach a wider audience and get paid for it. Feist became much more popular when her song 1234 was used in an Apple commercial. Matt and Kim had the same experience when their song Daylight was used in a Bacardi ad. Even veteran musicians like Sting have used this technique. In 2000, Sting wanted to promote his then-unknown song, Desert Rose, and agreed to allow Jaguar to use it in one of their commercials. Yeah, that was to do with Sting's manager, who realized that 
the video that they were shooting looked like it could be a Jaguar commercial. So he actually offered up, he offered them the opportunity of having Sting do a commercial for them. And Sting did it and it proved to be, you know, successful endeavor on his part. And Jaguar liked it too. It was a great ad for them. They lowered the age of their average buyer, which they were looking to do by making their product seem, you know, hipper and cooler. And the budget that they got was from Jaguar was huge. It was much bigger than they would get from a record industry for promotion and for shooting an MTV video. So from the perspective of Sting and his people, it was a great deal. Licensing music like Desert Rose may have driven jingles to the brink of extinction, but they're not gone yet. In fact, in the past 10 years, a handful of them have been quite successful. So, in an era when the current is flowing against the jingle, what makes a modern jingle able to buck the trend? Well, some of them are successful for the reasons that the old jingles were successful. You know, they're catchy, they're memorable, you know, well-written or whatever. Some of them are successful because they're ironic and they're funny. The most successful ones that might have a chance of being used nationally are the ones that are more ironic and or funny. So they're not being used to seriously sell a product like jingles used to be in the past. But they're still around. They're not dead. And they're, they're certainly not dead in local and regional markets. And you can still hear them there. But the use of jingles in national campaigns by national brands is nothing what it used to be. So then, what of Poopery's Imagine Where You Can Go? The lyrics fall into the same ironic vein as the freecreditreport.com jingle. But is this actually a jingle? Helen Saltzman, the host of The Illusionist, doesn't think so. I think that that doesn't count as a jingle because that is a song that's structured like a conventional song. And I think a jingle doesn't necessarily have that first chorus, first chorus structure over three minutes. I think a jingle has to be shorter. In many ways, Helen is right. As we said before, Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines a jingle as a short song that is easy to remember and that is used to help sell a product on television or radio. Poopery's song is not short, it's a full-length song, but it's also not on the television or radio. Traditional jingles were normally kept short because radio and TV typically sell ad slots in lengths of 30 seconds or a minute. The longer the ad, the more expensive it is to buy the time, so there was a financial incentive to keep the jingles short. But they don't need to be short. After the Chiquita Banana song and Pepsi Cola Hits the Spot became popular, they were lengthened to full-length songs and sold to sheet music. Imagine Where You Can Go was able to begin its life as a full-length song because it bypassed radio and television and was released directly onto YouTube. Posting videos on YouTube is free no matter what the length is, so the financial incentive to keep the song short is no longer there. So, does Imagine Where You Can Go fit the traditional definition of jingle? No. But maybe, with all the changes the internet has brought to the traditional world, Merriam-Webster's definition will come to be one of the things that changes. There is such a blurring in things that go big on YouTube when it is an advert, basically, and they make it entertaining, so you share it, but it is an advert. So yes, I guess you've convinced me it's a jingle because it is a song to sell product. Helen Zaltzman might be willing to alter her own definition of jingle, but unless songs like this become common, there's a good chance Merriam-Webster won't bother to revisit the word. 
Like Pepsi-Cola hits the spot did in 1939, Imagine Where You Could Go could be foreshadowing what ad music will sound like in the future. Or it could be like the first Wheaties jingle nearly a century ago, an extremely successful anomaly, but not a trendsetter. Tim Taylor is leaning towards Wheaties. I don't think it's ever going to go away, and it may come back in force. It may be that you know the culture will shift again, and people will say, gee, the idea of commissioning somebody to write a song just to sell our product, this is a really good idea. It may come about again, but not really soon, I think. That's it for this episode of Between the Liner Notes. If you would like to hear another great podcast, I recommend Helen Zaltzman's show, The Illusionist. The Illusionist is about language, its history, and how it's used today. Episode 29 is a good place to start, which is about a woman who learns how to write a successful dating profile by assuming the identity of the opposite sex. And Helen, thanks for coming on the show. Also, a big thanks to Tim Taylor for being my guest. If you would like to know more about Jingles, please check out his book, The Sounds of Capitalism, Advertising, Music, and the Conquest of Culture. Tim's research is really impeccable. This show is distributed by Goat Rodeo and produced by me, Matthew Billy. Special thanks to Jason Silverman and Laura Vandiver for all their help with this episode. Also thanks to Poopery for allowing us to use Imagine Where You Can Go. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or whatever application you use to listen to podcasts. You can find us at our website, betweenthelinernotes.com. Feel free to contact us. We'd love to hear from you. As always, thanks for listening. We'll talk more on the next Between the Liner Notes.